Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops Season 2, Episode 7. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are white. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. (laughs) And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Mm -hmm. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature your voicemail on one of our future episodes. That's right. Can't wait to hear from you. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Jesse Dotson Jr. and the Leicester Street Murders. Mm. This case was suggested to us by Marcus in our Facebook group. Thank you, Marcus. This case is wild. So um, we were riveted doing the research and are looking oh, yeah. talking to you guys about it. So how you doing? I'm doing good. I was really busy this weekend doing lots oh. of stuff, getting ready, you know, 
holidays are coming, getting ready. My daughter's going to be here for Christmas with my grandson. So, yeah, super excited. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, holiday stuff. How about you? Same. Uh, Everything's decorated. Um, we have three Christmas trees. Oh my God. Uh, Um, (laughs) I only got the one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, my kids wanted their own in their rooms and I I thought that was such a neat idea. Um, and then we decorated the shit out of the big tree that we have in the, in the living room. Uh huh. I never, never in my life have I been more proud of a tree that I've, that I've trimmed. Aww. It is, it looks so good. Well, you but should take pictures is, for sure. I know, I know. And maybe post them. Part of it is yeah. the lights came on the tree already. <laughs> oh, that's of, cool. Yeah. With light, so it looks so good. So sweet. Yeah, we're in the spirit. <laughs> so um, now we're going to get into our uh, mailbag. We've got some listener letters. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like this, they're flying down from the sky <laughs> little angels thank little, you so much angels post office angels <laughs> yeah <laughs> so ashley on facebook sent me a message and she said uh this podcast is so excellent i came across it after catching up on another true crime podcast on spotify and i've been hooked from episode one hey i am so glad that someone is paying attention to not only the killers but the victims and giving us a fantastic podcast to listen to at the same time so thank you ashley thanks ashley <laughs> Um, we got a lovely iTunes review from Miss Richard, and um, she gave us five stars, I believe. So Ooh, thank nice. you so much. Um, but here's what she had to say. I read because I read the other reviews and I get what their problems are with the podcast, but that's what I love about it. They are just two chicks talking about crimes and enjoying themselves. I hate the dry podcasts that just spew out a story, but don't sound like they're enjoying doing it. Almost robotic. And not to mention the ads. I like that I caught this podcast at its early stages. These women are telling stories and making it entertaining. So thank you so much, Ms. Rochelle. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to add, you know, we know our show is not for everybody and that is okay. <laughs> but to those of you who are rocking with us and listening to us regularly and following us and watching us grow and supporting us, we are so grateful. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we are amazed <laughs> that people are lis- <laughs> listening. We really only expected our, my, my mom to listen. Uh, <laughs> and maybe so, my sister and, yeah <laughs> uh, but we're like uh approaching fifteen thousand downloads at this point so wow we're, we're so just over yeah just oh, happy happy happy, happy. Yeah. Uh, so um anyway uh keep keep sharing you know stories with us um we we love sharing our stories with you guys um giving you tips on how to keep from getting murdered um and we're just always trying to improve the show so yeah um Stay, uh, stay rocking with us and stay engaged. So um, thanks again, everybody. Yeah, thank you. Um, I also wanted to mention to our patrons that uh, uh, I made a mistake (laughs) (laughs) when mailing out the buttons and I didn't calculate the postage correctly. So those went out again 
I had to go out again this week. <laughs> and because of the delay, we added in some stickers and maybe Sleep. something else too. Uh, and these are the, the first batch. So, mm -hmm. and obviously I didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> but now we got it figured out. So there should yes. not be any more delays going forward. Yes. And I sincerely apologize. <laughs> also, if you are a patron, please check your email address listed on your patron profile and look for an email from us and or add your shipping address to your profile if you can so uh we can send out merch yes i just adjusted um our patreon page because here's another thing we never thought anybody would sponsor the show so i <laughs> i did the patreon page like i don't know six months ago and I forgot all about it and then it was like whoa People, <laughs> there's people here so uh so i adjusted the settings so that before somebody checks out they have to um provide their mailing address so okay cool we should we should be getting them pretty easy um we did get a new patron uh Yay. like in the last 24 hours denisa denisa you're the girl i never had and i want to get to know you better that wasn't necessary but i just wanted to do it <laughs> denisa posted on uh our patreon uh, Paige, she said, I'm just posting here to say I love the podcast and wanted to support a podcast by people of color as a fellow person of color. Love listening to two true crime nerds. Amen. Being able to support the and being able to support the show. Keep up the great work and love that y'all are repping New York, right? No, we're not. But <laughs> Beth, Beth has some New York ties. Yes, I did live yeah. in New York for a while. So, <laughs> so kind of, um, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Uh, but that's cool that she thought we, we were, we were repping New York. That yeah. means we maybe we have accents and sound really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> still, so uh, she goes on to today, still listening through the older episodes, though. I keep up with the new ones because I'm weird and cannot ignore the new notification from your podcast on my app. Hey, Denise, I'm weird, too. So <laughs> me too. <laughs> You're in good company. You are in very good company. Uh so thanks for creating a great podcast and look forward to seeing it grow. Thanks so much. My dad used to say to me when I was a uh, like a teenager and in college, Wendy, you are the most ridiculous black person in the world. <laughs> thanks, Dad. <laughs> yes, you are in very good company. So um we haven't had this race discussion in a long time. Uh, I think we did in our first our first couple of episodes, maybe another time during season one. But I don't know if we've gotten into it season two. Um, and uh, I don't think we need to bring this up all the time because it's woven. The theme is woven throughout each one of our episodes and the cases we talk about. But I wanted to say before we get into this episode, we would um, like to remind everybody, this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk about and hear about sometimes, and race is the same way. Um, but both are just part of the world that we live in, and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about um, true crime and race and learn. Um, we're all learning all the time and trying to be our best sexy selves. Amen. Um, I got a I got a message, uh, and we've gotten a few messages like this, but. Um, recently so it came to my mind um listeners asking how they can be better white people um and i think first i love this question and i think that there are a couple ways um if you are ca capable of speaking up for a person of color or uh, somebody in a marginalized group in the lgbtq community or giving an opportunity to a marginalized um 
person, um, like hiring them or in a meeting, asking them what they think. Um, you know, also I recommend consuming as much content to inform yourself about people that are different than you. On previous episodes, I've recommended 13th, the documentary on Netflix. It's fucking amazing. Um, maybe read some Toni Morrison. Um, there is a, a book written by a sociologist called Lies My Teacher Told Me Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong. Um, the book is, even it was written in the 90s, still very relevant today. Why Fragility, the book, our podcast, um, Yo, Is This Racist is a podcast. Um, Yo, uh, there's a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, the Wilderness podcast gets really into American history and the parties and, and how race, it seems to be discussed in all 13 episodes. Um, there's so much content out there that if you happen to be somebody who doesn't know anybody different than you, either race-wise or sexual identity or economic background, um, go to the internet start there um, and then get to know people who are different than you ask questions and listen um, and so uh, those are my recommendations Beth do you have anything to add to that no no that's uh, pretty comprehensive and uh, really great suggestions I and I, I do have to say that I've actually learned a lot by doing this podcast same and I'm really grateful to be able to do this show especially with you oh my god <laughs> Same, girl, same. <laughs> and we welcome our listeners to be a part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Yeah, and we also get um, good messages on Instagram. So you can always slide into our DMs on Instagram, too. Um, so let's take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. So we would like to invite any listeners who have a business to advertise to do it with us. For more information, please email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com or check out our website at fruitloopspod.com. So uh, who's our subject today? Today we're talking about Jesse Dotson Jr. and the Lester Street murders in Memphis, Tennessee. He killed six members of his family, four adults and two children and also attempted to murder two of his nephews and one niece all in one night. So he's not technically a serial killer, but occasionally we will cover uh, mass murderers or, um, you know, maybe other crimes. Right, uh, right. And this is one of those. This is one of those. This is a story that uh, uh, I was only able to find... um, there wasn't that much info about him, and I don't know. I don't know if there's been any podcasts about him. Otherwise, that, I, would, I haven't. I would have to him. <laughs> yeah, I have not been able to find a podcast about him. Yeah, so thank goodness for Fruit Loops, Amen. So let's get into some stats. Okay, Jesse Dotson Jr. was a mass murderer who killed his brother and his brother's family after an argument. He had seven victims. Um, Jesse murdered someone in 1994, and later, after a release from prison, he murdered more people on March 2nd, 2008. He was arrested on March 8th. His victims, speak their names because they're important, Hallie Cox, um, Cecil Dotson was 30, Marissa Williams uh, was 27, Uh, she was the mother of four of his kids, Uh, Hollis Seals was age 33, 
Shindiri Roberts Robertson was 22. Uh, his two nephews, Samario Dotson, was four, and Cecil Dotson II was two. Um, his MO was shooting the adults and beating slash stabbing the children. The crimes occurred in Memphis Teen. Uh, that's Memphis, Tennessee, but that's just how I heard rephrased in rap songs. <laughs> anyway, uh, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison uh, on November 21st in 1994 for that first murder of Hallie Cox. He was released on parole on August 27th, 2007. And uh, after he murdered his family, uh, he was sentenced to six death sentences on October 12th, 2010. <sighs> All right. So, <laughs> so much talking. So sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about uh, the guy's early life. All right. So uh, Jesse Dotson Jr. was born on December 19th, 1974 in Memphis, Tennessee. His family referred to him as Junior. And we will also refer to him as Junior so that we don't confuse him with his father, Jesse Dotson Sr., who is also a part of the story. Uh, the family lived in Binghamton, which is a neighborhood on an edge of Midtown in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm not absolutely certain on the pronunciation of that, uh, but it looks like Binghamton to me. It does to me, too. Plus, you got a lot of degrees and read really well, so I'm sure that's it. <laughs> uh, so, at times, Junior had a very hostile relationship with his family. As a teenager, he regularly fought with neighbors and siblings. In 1990, at age 15, Junior was charged with disorderly conduct for making threats against his mother as she tried to discipline him. A month later, he was charged with assault after a 13-year-old boy told his parents that Junior had punched him in the face and threatened to put him in the hospital if he didn't bring him $25 the next day. What hmm. a shit. Yes. <laughs> Not nice. No. Not nice. <laughs> One year later, in the fall of 1991, police arrested Junior for disorderly conduct after his mother told police he came home and wanted to fight his brother. After placing her son in the bedroom and locking the door, Dotson broke the door open and punched several large holes in the wall, the arrest report stated. Dotson then placed his finger in his mother's face, oh. telling her he was going to kill her. When officers arrived, Dotson was loud and angry, refusing to calm down and still wanting to fight his brother. Wow. Yeah. And well, I think it would be really hard to call the police on your your own kid. You know what I mean? Like, so oh, it must yeah. have been pretty bad. Uh, police charged Junior again in 1992 with disorderly conduct following an incident in which Junior cussed at a neighbor during an argument and then threw two beer bottles into her apartment. And on December 13th, 1991, six days before his 17th birthday, police pulled over a car that Junior was riding in. On the floorboards, an officer saw a, a 20 gauge sawed off shotgun. Whoa. Yikes. <laughs> sawed off <laughs> shotgun and a 38 caliber pistol. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, 
So now we're going to get into the timeline. On January 8th, 1994, a little more than two years later, after purchasing drugs from Junior, a man by the name of Hallie Cox discovered that he had, in fact, bought shavings of soap. (gasps) Yeah. The two argued, and during the conflict, Junior killed the man. Okay. So you cheated me and I get killed? Yep, Uh, yep. Uh, so on May 5th, 1994, Junior was arrested. Wow. So it took a while for them to catch up to him, I guess. Junior was arrested and charged with first degree murder. He was 19 years old. November 21st, 1994, he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge, second degree murder. He received an 18 year sentence and spent nearly 14 years in state prison. According to his family, he was never the same after that. On August 27th, 2007, Junior was released on parole and moved in with his sister, Nicole Dotson, in her apartment at Goodwill Village in Memphtown. Uh, it's Memphis, but again, in the rap songs, they, they got me. Do they really? They, they, say, Mem- yeah. they say Memphtown? Yes. Hmm. 3-6 Mafia. Uh, is, aren't they your favorite rap group? Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> you do realize uh, I'm 53 years old, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get all that. <laughs> Ooh, 53. You know, they say that, um, uh, I think I just read that women uh, in their mid-50s or 54, mid-50s, that, that that's when they hit their prime. Get get ready, Beth. (laughs) Um, So I digress. According to Nicole, Junior felt like no one in his family was there for him. And he held a grudge against their their family because um, he believed they should have visited him more while he was in jail. And he expressed those feelings to her every day. Junior began working with their father, Jesse Dotson Sr., as a painter and he renewed his relationship with his brother Cecil, who worked as a maintenance man at an apartment building and rented a home on Leicester Street in Binghamton. But Junior's relationship with his brother was still full of conflict. Mm. On uh, January 29th, 2008, Junior, Cecil, and several other men were playing cards at Cecil's home. I imagine they were playing spades. It's a black game. After the card game, Junior stood up, put on Cecil's leather jacket and began to walk out of the house. As Cecil tried to stop him, Junior drew a semi-automatic pistol and challenged his brother to take the coat back from him. I dare you! Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) Cecil then followed his brother in his car to the Goodwill Village Apartments in North Memphis, but eventually lost him. Although Cecil reported to police that his brother robbed and threatened him, Junior was not charged with a crime. I wonder why that, that happened. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, in March 2008, 30-year-old Cecil, Cecil's six children ranging in age from 12 years old to two months old, and Marissa Williams, Cecil's 27-year-old fiance and mother of four of his children, as we mentioned earlier, were living at the home on Leicester Street. They had been living in the home for five or six months. On Saturday, March 1st, 2008, Jesse Sr., Jesse Jr., and William Waddell, also known as Fat, went to Cecil's Leicester Street home to watch a televised University of Memphis basketball game. Marissa Williams and five of the children were also home during this time, but Cecil's sixth child, 12-year-old Sierra Dotson, was spending the weekend at her mother's home. Oh, boy. 
They were unable to watch the game because Cecil's television could not receive the broadcast. Jesse Sr. left Cecil's house around 6 or 6.30 p.m., and as he was leaving, he saw Cecil on the porch cleaning his grill and preparing to barbecue. He did not see Cecil or Jesse Jr. again that night and never again saw Cecil alive. William Waddell, a.k.a. Fat, left Cecil's home at 10.30 or 11 p.m., and when he left, Cecil was still alive. Oh, my God, so I'm just like picturing it it's a the the babies were asleep i thought everybody was awake um i think some of them were awake some of them were sleeping and some of them were awake okay. uh the, probably the oldest one w- mm-hmm. was still awake mm-hmm. so on sunday march 2nd 2008 the next morning jesse senior stopped at nicole's apartment to pick junior up for work he was not there and nicole did not know where he was Jesse Sr. asked Nicole to tell Junior to contact him if he wanted to keep his job. Later that evening, Junior called Jesse Sr. and explained that he had not called because his girlfriend, Sheila Jones, Mm -hmm. had hidden his cell phone after they'd argued. Okay. Junior did not explain why he had missed work. When Junior and Fat went to dinner that evening, he went to dinner after killing his family. That evening, Junior asked Fat if he wanted to pick up Cecil. Fat had called Cecil numerous times on March 2nd, but had not reached him. So they did not go by the Leicester Street house. Little Sierra Dotson had also been trying to call her father, Cecil, on March 2nd. It was her 13th birthday, and she was supposed to do something with him, but they could not get in touch with him. That's horrible. I know. On Monday, March 3rd, 2008, Junior rode to work with Jesse Sr. around 8 a.m., still acting totally normal, but they stopped diabolical. Uh, They stopped working at 11 a.m. due to rain. Later that same day, Junior called Jesse Sr., telling him that Nicole wanted him to drive by Cecil's house because the mother of Cecil's two-year-old son, Cecil II, feared something was wrong. Erica Smith had been unable to reach Cecil by telephone since the very early morning hours of Sunday, March 2nd, 2008, and no one had answered the door at the Leicester Street home when she knocked around 3 p.m. I believe she is uh, the mother of Cecil II. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, she knocked around 3 p.m. that day. Um, She said that the door was partially open and the radio was playing, but she did not see anyone or hear the children, although she could see the television just inside the door and the photographs on the wall across from the door. Okay. On the morning of March 3rd, Miss Smith discovered that Cecil had not shown up for work and that his relatives had not heard from him. She still could not reach him by telephone. When she called Fat at work numerous times expressing her concerns, he told her to call the police. She took his advice and called the police in the early evening and waited outside the Leicester Street home for them to arrive. She must have known there was something wrong. Otherwise, yeah. she probably would have gone inside, I would think. Yeah, I think you're right. Officer Randall Davis arrived first. As he walked in the front door, he could smell the dead bodies. The storm mm-hmm. door was closed but the interior door was partially open and he could see a person's foot lying on the floor inside. Entering the front door, Officer Davis discovered four adult bodies, later identified as Cecil, Marissa Williams, Hollis Seals, and Shindri Roberson. All appeared to have sustained multiple gunshot wounds. Officer Davis did not check for vital signs because it was obvious to him that they were deceased. 
Officer Davis, along with two other officers, continued throughout the house, searching for the survivors and the perpetrators, while another officer secured the front door. Officer Davis noticed blood throughout the house, but none of it appeared to be fresh. Officer Davis saw someone in the hallway bathroom and discovered nine-year-old CJ Cecil Jr. in the bathtub with a knife stuck in his head. Officer Davis first believed that CJ was deceased, but then noticed the child's eye twitch. After alerting others that he had found a survivor, Officer Davis continued clearing the home. In a bedroom on the left side of the hallway, Officer Davis discovered four-year-old Samario, who was deceased. In another bedroom, Officer Davis discovered two-year-old Cecil II and five-year-old Cedric, both of whom appeared deceased to Officer Davis. Meanwhile, another officer located two-month-old Sunaya, who was still alive, and carried her out of the house. The officers exited just as Memphis Fire Department personnel arrived, and Officer Davis let them know a survivor had been found in the bathroom. Um, as firefighter Jason Vosberg approached the house, he could smell the blood in the air. He later described it as a thick, spoiled smell like it had been there a while. Firefighter and EMT Daniel Moore was instructed to check the adult victims for signs of life, but he did not actually touch them because it was obvious to him that they were deceased. He described the blood as definitely cold. Police believe the bodies had been in the home for approximately 40 hours. When Mr. Vosberg and a paramedic entered the first bedroom, they discovered that although Cecil II was deceased, Cedric was still alive, so they carried him outside to an ambulance. During this time, Mr. Vosberg was informed that another deceased victim was in the other bedroom. When he returned inside, Mr. Vosberg and Mr. Moore were summoned to the bathroom, where firefighter Herbert Henley was attending to CJ. There were cuts on CJ's face and a blade sticking out of the top of his head. It's been often referred to as a sawzall blade? Sawzall blade. What is that? It's just a blade that goes into a reciprocating saw. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that the reason why they thought it was a Sawzall blade um, Mm -hmm. was because it was just a blade. It had no handle. Oh, okay. Yeah, because there were broken knives found throughout the house. Yeah, like all the the handles were broken off the knives for some reason. And uh, the doctor who removed the blade said it was a steak knife or it was Ah. a blade from a steak knife. But... Uh. I think because uh, it was just a blade that at first they thought it was a Sawzall blade. Okay, take it away, Beth. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Moore later described the bathroom as a mess with blood everywhere. According to Mr. Moore, when he and Mr. Vosberg entered the bloody bathroom, CJ, quote, turned his head and the next thing we saw was one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. It was a knife stuck embedded in his skull and it was just stuck there and it absolutely is the worst thing i've ever seen in my life uh yeah uh yeah i it's it's horrifying to think about and there's expert pictures of like the x-rays on online it's just crazy this yeah poor uh, guy. i i don't i can't remember if i mentioned this later in the episode or not but um on the trial um it came out um that the little boy said, uh, Uncle Junior, I love you. <laughs> like, don't do this to me. And he did it anyway. Yeah. Um, 
So um, that's horrifying. In addition to uh, the embedded knife, Mr. Moore observed puncture wounds on CJ's abdomen and multiple superficial cuts to his neck. He also had multiple defensive wounds on his hands. Um, They removed CJ from the bathtub and transported him um, via ambulance uh, to the hospital. The dead were Cecil Dotson and his fiancée, Marissa Renee Williams, Hollis Seals and his girlfriend, Shindri Roberson, Samario Dotson, age four, and Cecil Dotson II, age two. The children who were still alive and taken to the hospital were Cecil Dotson Jr., or CJ, age nine, Cedric Dotson, age five, and Sonia Dotson, age two months. Jesus Christ. Um, Well, now we're done with the timeline. Let's get into the investigation. Um, I learned a lot about this case from the first 48. Um, So there's um, episode, this episode of the first 48 is on YouTube and um, there's videos of the trial and stuff. Um, But I wanted to give props to the first 48 because most of these cop shows don't do a a fair job investigating and documenting these cases. Um, They use coded racist ass language to describe the perpetrators and victims like thug, prostitute, lowlife, etc. Some police departments they follow on the first 48 are better than others. The Oklahoma guys, they're fucking trash. But the Memphis, Miami, and New Orleans homicide detective cases um, do a really good job. And I think it's because they have people of color, including black women, on these police forces. And um, they're just more knowledgeable and sympathetic to the circumstances surrounding the crimes. Um Victims and victims' families are definitely treated with more compassion and understanding um, at the uh, good cities that I mentioned. And I can't say the same for the mostly white homicide departments that I've seen on other police departments or homicide um, uh, cases on other crime shows. So I just had to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Sergeant Anthony, uh, also known as Tony Mm -hmm. Mullins of the Homicide Bureau, described the Leicester Street crime scene as horrific and the worst he had ever worked Mm. all of the adult victims had sustained multiple gunshot wounds and all except mr seals had been shot at least once in the leg Mm. two guns were used in the shooting a nine millimeter and a 380 caliber although neither gun was ever found but officers located spent bullets and shell casings in the living room. And when officers moved a jacket on the love seat, they found a sealed Ziploc bag that contained additional 9mm and uh, 380 spent shell casings. Sergeant Mullins believed that the person or persons responsible for the crimes had collected the spent shell casings after the shootings, intending to remove them from the scene, but they did not. Sergeant Mullins believed that all of the adult victims' bodies were moved or staged after the shooting. Cecil's body was located in a kneeling position in front of the sofa with a bag of marijuana in his left hand. Cecil had sustained several gunshot wounds, including several to the front of his body, one to his neck, one to the bottom of his foot, and several to his lower legs. Fibers collected from Cecil's chin and mouth were consistent with a pillow having been placed over his face when he was shot, Mm. and police found a pillow in the living room through which a bullet had passed. Oh, man. Sergeant Mullins believed that uh, Cecil was likely facing his attacker when the first shot was fired because Cecil had several gunshot wounds to the front of his body, which he would not have sustained had he been kneeling with his torso resting on the sofa at the time of the shooting. 
Sergeant Mullins also believed that the bag of marijuana had been placed in Cecil's hand um, because Cecil would have dropped it had he been holding it being shot multiple times or attempted yeah. to flee or defend himself. Yeah. Shindri Roberson's body was in a seated position on the floor with her back to the sofa, her legs extended and her head to the side. Her shirt was pulled up, exposing her breasts and her pants were pulled down, exposing her lower body from her waist to her knees. A clear plastic bag containing crack cocaine was found on the outer portion of her vagina. So, uh, this is just wild. It's so he's weird. Planting, yeah. Planting drugs. Usually the cops, the, Dave Chappelle has this like joke that he's made in the past about how um, cops will get to a scene where there's black people and just sprinkle some crack on them so they can arrest <laughs> so they can arrest them. <laughs> but usually that's what something the cops do, not that you're supposed to do to your family. Anyway. Yeah, I, I'm like, why why did he do all this? I'm so elaborate. Like, it's so extra. Yeah, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, moving along, Sergeant Mullins concluded that Ms. Robertson's body also had been staged after the shooting and that she had been pulled from the sofa to the floor near the time of or after her death and her clothing then altered. Little blood was found on the floor beneath her body, but a nearby sofa cushion was stained with very thick coagulated blood. Sergeant Mullins described the, um, described it as consistent with the type of blood loss that would occur from a gunshot wound like the one Miss Robertson sustained to her leg. Ms. Robertson's pants were also saturated with blood and bullet holes, and her pants corresponded with the location of the gunshot wounds to her legs, indicating that the pants were covering her legs when she was shot and then were pulled down afterwards. The bag of crack cocaine also appeared to be part of the staging, as it was only slightly touching her and appeared to have been placed on her body. Sergeant Mullins believed that Marissa Williams' body, too, had been positioned after the shooting. Ms. Williams' body was located on the floor, slumped over onto Ms. Robertson, uh, with her legs positioned across Ms. Robertson's legs. He pointed out, however, that the carpet was bloodstained on the side opposite of the way she was leaning. Additionally, Ms. Williams' legs were lying across Ms. Robertson's legs, indicating that Ms. Williams' body had been staged after Miss Robertson's body had been positioned on the floor. So he just he just kept going. Yep. <laughs> staging. Yep. Yeah. Sergeant Mullins testified that Hollis Seals's body was located across from the front door and near the door connecting the kitchen to the living room. His pants were pulled down to below his knees. A cup and a wallet were found near his body, as was a purse with the contents inside which was later identified as belonging to Ms. Williams. Although Sergeant Mullins believed that Mr. Seals was shot in the area where he was found, he believed that Mr. Seals's clothing and body were altered after the shooting. Based on the bloodstains, the distance between them, and the location of Mr. Seals's legs, one atop the other, Sergeant Mullins believed that Mr. Seals's body may have originally been lying in one area and then was rolled from that area when his pants were pulled down and his wallet was removed. Man, this guy is doing the most. Yeah, what the hell? Uh, Sergeant Mullins surmised that a perpetrator in the living room could have trapped the children by standing in the doorway of the living room. 
Although doors leading to the outside of the home were located in the laundry room and the master bedroom, to reach those doors from the hall, bathroom, or from bedrooms one and two, the children would have been required to walk through the living room. In addition, the door to the laundry room was secured by a tied cord and appeared as if it had not been used in a while. Most of the windows in the home had bars. The children had been beaten with boards and stabbed with knives. Did you hear that? The children were beaten with boards and stabbed with knives. All of these injuries were inflicted with wooden boards and kitchen knives the perpetrator had found in the home. Officers found bloodstained and broken pieces of wood in various places, including the hallway, the bathroom, and the bedrooms. And in total, officers found five knife blades throughout the home, including the the blade that was lodged in CJ's head. Yeah, and like we said, for some reason, he removed the handles from the the knife blades. Not sure why. Fingerprints? Yeah, but then he just left them there. Yeah. Then I was also thinking, maybe the knife broke? Yeah, but all five of them? Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just weird. There's a lot of strange things in yeah, this case. There is. <laughs> On March 4th, 2008, Junior was interviewed by the police. He was not under arrest and at the time was only considered a possible witness. Mm -hmm. And he floated the idea to the cops that this was a gang hit by the gangster Disciples, Mm -hmm. which is a gang that he said that Cecil was a member of Mm -hmm. and that he was in some trouble with them. And Mm -hmm. so thinking back on the crime scene and the staging, I'm like wondering, you know, was he trying to stage it to look like a gang hit? That's that's the impression I was under. But I don't know how that made it look like a gang hit. Uh, I mean, the level of violence, the fact that there was drugs found at the scene. Um, Maybe. And uh, and on the episode of the first 48, somebody was mentioning the term blackout, which means when a gang when a gang orders the hit of somebody they're mad at and the entire family. So, I don't know, maybe that's what a blackout is supposed to look like. And that's oh, what, yeah, maybe. That's, I what, don't he know. Was, that's what he was um, trying um, to doing. make it look like, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say that on the first 48, this I, it's one of my favorite shows, but this is how you know the person did it, is if they blurred out, bleep out their face or not. And in the oh. first five minutes, they interviewed this guy and he was not bleeped out. We were like, he did it. Oh, wow, <laughs> I didn't know he's that. He's the one who did it. Yeah. Um, so he he went into the, the police station, and gave this bullshit ass story to the, to the cops. Let me tell you about it. On March 5th, two days after he had undergone um, surgery, the uh, police visited the nine year old CJ. That's the boy who had the knife in his head um, in the hospital to see if there were anything that he could recall from that night. Um, They found him in and out of consciousness. He was cursing. He was talking crazy, screaming out names, including Cassandra and Roderick. At some point, officers decided to send Pat Lewis of the Child Advocacy Center to the hospital with Lieutenant Mason to talk to CJ. The black female homicide detective, Sergeant Caroline Mason, said his eyes were swollen shut. She Mm -hmm. asked him if he could recall what happened. And she said he started to tear up and he said they knocked on the door and his mama let them in. Then he said the grown up stood in a circle in the living room fighting and arguing. She said after that, the little boy who homicide detectives described as a diamond to the investigation began to hyperventilate and would not say another word. So they backed off and waited for tips to roll in. Mm. 
Uh, they put out a $30,000 reward to anyone that had any information that led to an arrest. Uh, police pursued gang leads, specifically the gangster disciples, as it had been suggested that they may have ordered a blackout, as I mentioned before, a hit to kill an entire family. Um, During the investigation, the entire Dotson family was put into protective custody, including (laughs) Jesse. Um, Members of the gangster disciples reportedly became angry when they learned that the gang had been implicated in the murders of women and children. When the family was put into protective custody, Junior held a gun to his head and threatened suicide. Mm. <laughs> he stated okay. that he did not want to return to, di- to return to jail, that they were trying to pin the offenses on him and that he was not going to jail for something he did not do. Uh, I guess he thought that the officers were coming for him instead hmm. of uh, coming to uh, put them in protective custody. Okay. But officers told him that they were not there to arrest him, but they were placing the family in protective custody. And then, and then I guess he stopped. <laughs> this guy's real piece of work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. On March 7th, 2008, officers received a telephone call from a nurse at the hospital informing them that CJ was awake and rational and that the police needed to come talk to him. Eventually, CJ recovered a little bit and he told police his uncle Jr., Jesse Denton, was responsible. And on March 8th, 2008, Jesse Dotson Jr. confessed after CJ identified him, Uncle Jr., as the lone attacker. He said he shot his brother, he shot the women, and then he stabbed the kids. He started to tell Lieutenant Armstrong this, and then the lieutenant let him talk to his mom. He told his mother everything. Uh, He told her his brother grabbed a shotgun, uh, then set it down, and that's when he just started shooting at at everybody in the room. she said, hey, she said, what happened to the babies? And she's holding his hand um, and, he, you know, he's holding hers and he's got his head down on the interrogation room table. She said, what happened to the babies? And he said, they got stabbed. And she asked him why. And uh, he mumbled uh, it was because they saw it. The lieutenant was baffled that someone could have so much rage to do that to adults, let alone kids. Same. I'm baffled yeah, too. me too. <laughs> Junior's mom held him and told him she loved him. She lost two sons, one to murder and the other to prison and several grandchildren. And still she held him and she told him she loved him. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. Of a mother. And I just feel really bad for the entire family. I mean, the ripple effects of this loss are, um, extreme um after the murder the community built a memorial for the family it was full of teddy bears even people who didn't even know the family stopped by to give their condolences and drop off cards and um teddy bears at the at the site um and the police um they when they announced that they apprehended dodson usually cops are like excited when they they catch a perp but um And and when they get to announce it, but the looks on all of their faces during that press conference was just complete sadness that they even had to be there. Yeah. And that uh, that memorial at the end of the 40 last 48 episode, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lady there and uh, she didn't even know the family and right. she was crying it uh i teared up i yeah. teared up too i mean yeah. even even talking about the case it's is 
it's, it's, yeah. t- it's a tough one. Yeah. We're trying to have fun, but <laughs> this is a tough one. <laughs> but this one is a tough one. Yeah, it's hard to joke around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry, if you were looking for huge laughs, we're doing our best. <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> we're trying to tell the story and uh, enjoy ourselves. So yeah, let's get into, one. it is a tough one. Let's get into the arrest. All right. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Justice. <laughs> Dotson was arrested on March 28, 2008, when he confessed to the crimes in the police station. Jesse was charged with six counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder. He did not plead guilty. He went to trial. Son of a bitch. Did he not think that they were going to convict him? <laughs> yep, that's what he thought. <laughs> um. Let's see. Uh, the cross-examination by the DA was fucking fire. When I say hip, give this guy. <laughs> because, because, oh man, you got, we'll link it up to the show because it was good. Um, I don't usually compliment DAs. Usually they are trash. But this time the DA got it right and they put on a great case. Jesse testified that um, he heard shots fired in the house and he jumped under the bed to save himself. Um, he knew his family was in the house. He knew they were dead. And uh, a two-month-old baby, a two-year-old child, a four-year-old child, a five-year-old child, and a nine-year-old child were in the house. But he never called his family. He, the, the DA was like, you never called your mama. You never called the police. And he was like, no, sir. I feared it for my life. And then um, the prosecution like blew up photos. Uh, that police took of the home showing just how close a fucking phone was to these dead bodies. And um, he said that uh, uh, he saw the phone. He just didn't bother to uh, pick it up Uh, and that he left the house Saturday night and went home and went to bed like nothing happened. And he went to, yes, he went to work on Monday, the day the bodies were discovered. In his testimony, Jesse Dotson claimed gang members were responsible for the attack and that he was innocent. He claimed that he was threatened when he was interviewed, and that's why he confessed. But CJ told jurors in his testimony that Uncle Junior attacked him and that he tried to fight off his uncle before ending up in the bathtub with a kitchen knife embedded in his head. Shout out to that little boy for being brave enough to um, face his uncle. In court, yeah. Um, authorities said that uh, said that after a day of drinking, Jesse Dotson shot and killed his brother Cecil Dotson in the early morning hours of March second, two thousand eight. I was wondering if there were substances involved in this. Um, sounds like there were. Yeah. He's <laughs> he then went after everyone else in the house with two guns, boards, and several knives to eliminate witnesses. Then Junior fled from the house by riding off on. A child's bicycle. Yeah, that's the only funny part in this whole story. <laughs> <laughs> he took the bike and rode off into the sunset like a, a, a true, a true badass. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. <laughs> My spirit needed it. <laughs> On October 11th, 2010, Jesse Dotson Jr. <laughs> Let me start again. Oh man! Uh, On October 11, 2010, Jesse Dotson Jr. was convicted on all counts. The jury took 90 minutes to convict. 
Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> and on October 12th, 2010, the nine women, three man jury chosen in Nashville and sequestered in Memphis deliberated okay. less than two hours before agreeing on the sentences. Defense attorneys had asked for life in prison without parole. Dotson instead hmm. received six death penalties, and on November 8th, 2010, Dotson received an additional 120 years in prison. Hey, our justicism doesn't always get it right, but when they do, they do. <laughs> they really do. <laughs> So, where are they now? In uh, 2013, Dotson's conviction was upheld on appeal. As far as we can tell, he is still in prison awaiting the death penalty. An April 2017 article mentioned that he was still serving his time. Ida Anderson, CJ, Cedric, and Sanaya's maternal grandmother took custody of the surviving children after the attack. In an interview at the time, Ida Anderson said, we are in counseling. It's hard. We're making adjustments. It's hard, but we'll get through it. With God's help, we will get through. There's probably a lot of church um, involved. Yeah. In their house. Yeah. yeah. Um, amen. Um, anyway. Thank goodness Cecil is alive and well. Um, That's CJ. (laughs) I heard him on a radio interview and he remembers everything from when he was nine years old Um, and uh, gave a really detailed interview. And he looks all right. He sounds all right. He's an adult now. Um, And so that's um, a happier part of the story that he's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Cedric Dotson is also still alive. He's in high school. In an interview last year when he was still in middle school, he said that he plays basketball uh, for his school and he wanted to keep playing basketball in high school. That's awesome. Uh, The littlest victim, Sanaya Dotson, was only two months old at the time of the crime. She's now 10. She does not remember the events. Um, but does know about what happened. Um, she practices ballet. She loves to garden and aspires to be a designer when she grows up, which is. Yeah. And dope. she's cute as a button. too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. That's, that makes me smile. That's good. Yeah. On a sadder note, Erica Smith, the mother of Cecil II, uh, the baby who was killed in the attack. Mm-hmm. Um, she was in a motor vehicle accident the same year on November in November of 2008. Oh, wow. And her neck was broken. And I couldn't find out how she's doing today. Um, I did a bunch of Googling and I just that was the only article I could find was about the car accident. So if you guys know anything about her, please let us know. I hope she's okay. Yeah. Because this is just too much tragedy for one family. Oh my gosh. To say the least. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping somebody um, gives us an update. Yeah. Um, Detective Sergeant Caroline Mason of the Memphis Police Department has since been promoted to um, major. So that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty 
good news too. Pretty cool. And um, I Googled her in our story. She was a, a sergeant. Yeah. It was mentioned somewhere that she'd been promoted to lieutenant. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, she's a lieutenant now. So I wanted to get for- more information about that. And then I found out she'd been promoted to a major. Cool. And then I found a whole thread, people talking about how much they love her. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. When Did you I- see that too? No, I didn't. But I just know I have the same feeling. She's my yeah. favorite favorite lady police officer. Um, yeah, they just love her. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> I, I want her. I, I want to meet her. <laughs> maybe, maybe if we ever make it to crime con, she'll be there and we can say hello. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, now we're going to get into what we believe made Mr. Dotson snap. Um, I'll start. First off, I think um, he when he got out of prison, he was never rehabilitated when he was in there. Um, His anger just grew. Um, He also didn't have a good relationship with his brother because he believed his brother uh, snitched on him, which led to his 18-year sentence before. Um, Dotson was poor, black, and when jobs or universities or sports teams don't have their their doors open, guess what? Gangs do. Um, And that's, uh, I believe, what led to his downfall. Now, some gang members um, in high places uh, are able to get good lawyers and then they don't, they don't have to, you know, serve long prison sentences or whatever. But um, when you are affiliated with a gang and uh, you get locked up, you have to remain affiliated to stay alive. Um, Another thing I wanted to point out was it seemed like even though Dawson was a piece of shit, his mom still showed love for him all the way to the end you know even yeah. after his confession um yeah. so i just think shout out shout out to that mother yeah so uh i i don't know much about gangs to be honest mm-hmm. i i do know that kids who don't have much in the way of family or who are poor will to turn to them as, as another family or as a way to make money selling drugs or something mm-hmm. like that uh I couldn't find out a whole lot about this guy's early home life before, like, he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, But like you said, it seemed like he had a loving mother. And his father later let him work with him, you know, in his painting job. Mm -hmm. So he was around, Mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. Um, But judging from how he behaved as a teenager, it seemed like he was a little shit. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult to control, actually totally out of control. There you go. And I didn't see mention anywhere that his siblings were like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard hard to tell if it had anything to do with his home life um, or if he was just a bad kid. But if I would were to guess, I would say he was a bad kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sometimes that happens. Yeah, and I can't help but think of my brother who he was not as bad as junior dotson mm-hmm. uh, he didn't kill us but <laughs> oh thank goodness then where would we be <laughs> <laughs> but he got into a lot of trouble as a teenager and made my parents life hell really and he had a perfectly normal home life with mm-hmm. loving parents mm-hmm. um of course our family wasn't perfect but it wasn't anywhere near bad mm-hmm. and my sister and i turned out okay mm-hmm. um so i don't know sometimes Kids are just bad. Anyway, yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, it seemed like he um, resented the fact that his family didn't didn't visit him enough or didn't do enough for him during the time when he, that he was in jail. And this I also find suspect. What? Um, the fact that he didn't feel that they did enough for him. Some people like this, uh, again, thinking about my brother, mm-hmm. um, you can never do enough for them. Everything oh. is always somebody else's fault. Mm-hmm. And they're pissed because maybe they didn't come like every day to visit him mm-hmm. or they didn't come every weekend to visit him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it was hard for them to do that. They yeah. had to work or whatever, you right. know, um, and but in any case, he was pissed about it and he harbored a lot of bitterness towards them. And I think he was just pissed off at his family and specifically his brother. Mm-hmm. And he just got angry one night over something really stupid and he lost it. Yeah. And uh, since he's a horrible person, once he'd killed his brother, he killed everyone else just because he didn't want to go back to jail. It's like the definition of like selfishness like super super duper selfishness (laughs) yeah but it's i mean it's insane to think that you killed one person and if you kill everybody else too you're not going to have to go to jail at some point (laughs) yeah Uh, that's just stupid exactly so uh now we're going to get into um our takeaways what we thought of this case Um, this is one of the saddest true crime cases I have ever come across in my entire black ass life. So many people were hurt, innocent people, babies. How can you kill an infant or your nephew after he told you that he loved you? And then hearing the prosecutor describe how the kids were beaten and sliced and that Dodson, he testified that he never, he never heard any babies screaming or crying. Um, that was gut wrenching to watch because he knew it was a lie. Um, but even just telling me telling the facts about the story is uh, really hard. hard. Um, I think there are a lot of things to blame for um, this whole incident. um, And this, this, the moment of these crimes taking place, I think, um, you know, uh, it's fair to discuss after this episode, prison reform, gun reform, criminal justice reform, poverty, education, all of those systems failed this entire family. Um, I think it's very ironic that salmonella was found harmful to people and it was removed from the shelves immediately. But these problems that I just listed off remain un- unsolved. <laughs> so it just seems yeah. so silly to me. Um, I'm glad uh, some of the babies survived and that they're thriving today, it sounds like. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out was uh, the 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 bars on the windows and that there was only one way in and out of the house. Um, and the victims, the kids, they did not stand a chance. Um, they couldn't have gotten out if they tried. Uh, I feel bad for the entire family and the entire community. Uh, also shout out to the detectives for investigating the shit out of this case relentlessly, even though um, they all said that, you know, they'd never seen anything like this. Many of the officers couldn't sleep. Um, I don't normally have very nice things to say about cops because <laughs> I think they're messy hoes. But these guys <laughs> did a great job. Um, so thank you, Memphis uh, Police Department. This yeah, hip hop air horn. Yes, hip hop air horn for y'all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, this is a really, really sad story. It makes my heart hurt thinking about all those babies. Yeah. They, it, and they were just babies. Yeah, they really were. They really were. Yeah. 
And there's actually a lot of information about the crime that I found in court records, just a ton. Mm -hmm. We'll link those so you can read all the details if you want to. There's more than what we talked about here. There was so much um, that I had to cut it down. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, if you want to read all the nasty details, they're there. Mm -hmm. But even though there was all this information about the crimes, Mm -hmm. there was very little information about the people involved. Mm. Um, Jesse Dotson Jr. doesn't have a wiki page. What? And I can't even figure out if he's been executed or not. I don't think so. I don't think so either. But um, there's nowhere that says... Where's the info? uh, Yeah, where's the info? Um, And I know very little about the victims or um, Dotson's early life. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't heard about this case before Marcus suggested it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard all kinds of stuff about Chris Watts and the Watts family's homicide. You know, the guy who killed his kids and his pregnant wife. Oh, the white guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the Watts family homicide has a wiki page. So already up on that already? oh yeah already wow yeah, the lester street murders does not wow that's so, pretty yeah funny. yep <laughs> so now, now we don't have to talk about sad stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> so this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. But in my mind, this is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's mistakes. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode, and we will just offer up generic tips. So um, one thing I wanted to talk about for uh, tips on (laughs) how to not get murdered is (laughs) gang. Um, Gangs are deadly. Um, and, uh, some people might not understand gangs. I think much of white America thinks that kids join gangs cause they're fun. <laughs> um, really there's just nowhere else for these kids to go. Um, if a gang like jumps you in, that's when they beat you up to initiate you or make you commit a crime or, you know, kill or beat somebody up to initiate you. What are you going to do? You know, you, you can't just You're be in. like, no, thank yeah. you. Um, yeah. so before it gets to that point, I think, communities should try to make gangs obsolete um there are there are ways to get out of gangs um even though it's really hard there's resources um you can help your family members get out one of the most famous um gang rehabilitation programs is um uh homeboy industries in los angeles it's run by a priest um i think some people might think well why why doesn't the the why don't they just move uh poor people can't just move (laughs) so uh uh again um i am still looking for more companies or more organizations like homeboy industries. And if I find them, I'll link them to the show or I'll post them up on our, on our social media pages. But um, there is help out there to um, get out of gangs. Um, Let's see. It is hard to get out, but 
it, it comes uh, at great cost to some. Um, so the easiest thing is not to get in, which is so much easier said than done. But, um, you know, if you want to help, maybe you can mentor a kid, maybe you can coach a kid's team or have your home be a safe space for kids to go and have cookies and do homework after school. That's a good start. Youth groups, sports teams, employment opportunities for kids in your community. Um, the key is to keep them away and um, have a better um, prize at the end of the tunnel for them. Because for the kids that join gangs, there is no better option in front of them. And I mean, if you're if you're walking to school every day and you see the dope boy with tons of money in his pocket, gorgeous cars, gorgeous women, and we out here hungry, man, I'm not going to school. <laughs> yeah, so. it's really, really tempting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, like I said, I don't know a lot about gangs. Mm -hmm. But I do know that uh, kids who are busy with activities don't have as much time to get into trouble, you know, yes, idle yes. hands and all that. Yeah. It's hard, though, uh, because when they're busy, it means you're busy. Mm -hmm. And when you're poor, sometimes all you have time for is work. Right. Uh, sometimes you have more than one job mm -hmm. and you're just trying to hold it together. You can't afford to put the kids in dance classes or music lessons mm -hmm. or whatever else. Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't always have the time for it either. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even when my grandson was living with me, we signed him up for T-ball. Mm -hmm. um, the practice times and places were often not very convenient for working people. Mm -hmm. It's like they expected that there were two parents and at least one of them didn't work. Mm -hmm. Like the, the practices would be like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I don't oh. get out of work until 4.30. I don't get home yeah. until like 5.30, you know, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. it's just ridiculous. It is kind of a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk about family in this country and how important it is. Family is mm -hmm. all the time. We talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, but our so society isn't really all that family friendly. Mm, yeah. And sometimes I feel like it's, it's all about the Benjamins. All, it's all, all that they care about is money. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, S feel the same way. Um, one yeah. thing I wanted to add is, um, uh, so like we live in, in a poor part of town, but we're, we're lucky. Um, so like when my kids have things, um, like we sign them up for sports at the community center cause it's cheaper, but we'll also buy extra, um, memberships for other kids who can't afford it. Oh, nice. Or like when there's field trips at my kid's school, um, there's, it's a charter school, so there's a fee for field trips. So we'll pay uh -huh. for more kids to be able to go. Oh, um, that is really nice. So I'm not I'm not going to be out here coaching anybody's team, but <laughs> I am yeah. happy to help by um, maybe making it more possible or more feasible for another family. So that's that's, a, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Something something to try um, yeah. to help all of our all of our communities. Because if yeah. if Uncle Sam's not going to help us out, we have to help each other out. Got to help each other. Yeah. So um, do we have any extra, extra read all about it crime news? I do. Okay. And this is another story that was brought to my attention by someone in our Facebook group. So hey. shout out to Rondika for Rondica. posting about this. <laughs> Thank you, Rondika. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Hania Aguilar, a 13-year-old and 8th grader from Lumberton, North Carolina, oh, was abducted oh. outside of her home on November 5th. Mm -hmm. 
She went outside before school to warm up the family's SUV when a man dressed in black uh, with a yellow bandana forced her into the SUV and then drove off. The Mm. SUV was found several miles south of her home. And unfortunately, Hania's body was found November 27th in a body of water in Robeson County, about 10 miles south of the mobile home park where she was kidnapped. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Authorities wouldn't elaborate on whether the body had been concealed, but they said it was not visible from the road or obvious to people passing by. Investigators spent Wednesday combing the area in daylight after finding the body the previous night. The cause of death hasn't been released pending an autopsy. Investigators would not describe the condition of the body, and an FBI official said he did not have any information as to whether Hania was killed where she was or found elsewhere. Very sad story. You know, I... Uh, in, this is an, an interesting story in how it was reported because this is a, a young girl of color and I heard about it on the evening news, like the national news. Lester Holt um, told oh, the wow. story, which is interesting. My husband and I talk about this all the time about Lester Holt because he's the guy at the helm. You uh-huh. we hear more stories about um, people of color in on the NBC nightly news. And I think Lester Holt has a lot to do with that. Um, yeah. So I, I, um, this is a devastating story. I feel terrible for this family. Um, but it was one that was on our radar because we heard about it on the national news. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, at least, at least, uh, she got some national news. I hadn't heard of it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, but I, I don't watch uh, the news on TV. Excuse so. me. I don't. <laughs> Uh, any reason? <laughs> Care to share? Uh, yeah, I I don't like network TV. Oh. Um, <laughs> I I I will get my news usually from the internet. Oh, or or NPR. Mm, yes, 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 yes. Or yes. or um, BBC. I get my news from the Daily Show. <laughs> oh, the Daily Show too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I get news other places too. <laughs> but by the time I watch the daily, like I've already heard everything on the internet, on NPR, on podcasts, and the Daily Show is just a nice way, nice funny way to seal it all Bra- up, round it out. Yeah, I'm yeah. already informed. I just want to laugh. So yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me is also good for that. That is too. a good way to laugh at the news. I like that too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so moving along, um, my news piece um, is about a Thanksgiving Day disagreement uh, that led to a father shooting his son about oh. the Kaepernick kneeling um, during oh, the wow. anthem. Yes. So we have Christmas and New Year's coming up. Hanukkah's coming up. And I don't want anybody else getting shot over the dinner table. No more families divided. But here's a story. Um, two of Jorge Luis Valencia Lama, La Madrid's sons were having a debate centered around former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick's game-changing decision to kneel during the national anthem during a 2016 preseason game. 
The silent protest against racial injustice has sparked national discourse and inspired players of various sports to join in solidarity. La Madrid was unable to separate his sons from fighting, so he went and got his shotgun after asking his 21-year-old eldest, uh, 21-year-old son, Esteban Marley Valencia, to leave. He did before, but quickly returned, and he was throwing around patio furniture. After hitting his father in the face with a water oh. bottle, uh, the 51-year-old, who was still holding his weapon, squeezed the trigger of the pistol and shot his son. He was oh, charged <laughs> He was charged with aggravated assault using a deadly weapon. Uh, the young man suffered non-life-threatening injuries and was treated at a nearby hospital. So, so uh, the guy hit his father in the face with a water bottle and mm-hmm. the father was holding a gun at the time. And did he accidentally squeeze the trigger? I don't think it was accident because he got the gun when they started fighting and he couldn't break them right. up. And he was like, oh, Hey, okay. you need to get the heck out of here. By the way, the son he shot has like a drinking problem and has had, had multiple oh. DUIs last year. Um, So uh, he was like, you need to get the heck out of here. I got this gun. And then his son was like, okay, I'm leaving. But then he came back and he was throwing around furniture. And then um, he was uh, essentially taunting his dad. And right. I mean, what if it was one of those metal water bottles from Costco? That's a weapon. Yeah, that's uh, even a, a plastic water bottle. If it's got a bunch of water in it, yeah. it'd be pretty painful. Yes, yes, water's indeed. heavy. Water is heavy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, he he pulled the trigger. So, uh, not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was a fun Thanksgiving. That was a fun-filled Thanksgiving. Pass the potatoes, please. So now we're going to get into the show where we shout out any content by people of color, about people of color, any marginalized groups, or any true crime goodies. So I wanted to share with you all Code Switch. It's a it's a podcast about race, um, and it's super interesting. And um, the latest episode is about race and dogs. Um, now. Uh, I've mentioned before on this show that some people believe dogs are capable of racism um, and Code Switch confirms it. <laughs> um, <laughs> some dogs are afraid of people with darker skin. Um, and uh, the show is hosted by Gene Demby, a black guy in my head. We're friends. Um, and Shireen Marisol Miraji. She's a half Latinx and half Iranian American woman. Um, we also talked about like dog breeds and race and uh, Beth, you and I both own pit bulls, which turns out used to be an American staple. That was the golden yeah. retriever um, for a family, yeah. for a family for those asshole golden retrievers took that title basically in the thirties, forties and fifties before segregation and redlining, you know, where they draw actual red lines on maps. So black people can't live there. Um, white people all had pit bulls. They were family dogs. Yeah. Um, but once, people moved to the suburbs and by people i mean white people the picture of an american changed and so did the family dog um and but pit bulls were still around in the inner cities um for poor black and brown families as family pets and for protection so it's a really good episode about dogs and racism so check it out that does sound good mm-hmm. yeah so my shout out um I just wanted to mention that i started watching a show on showtime called mm-hmm. escape at Danamora. Have you heard of that? No. 
No. Um, I added the Showtime app to my Fire Stick <laughs> <laughs> using the seven day free trial so I could watch the first episode because I'd heard about it. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, I'm going to check it out and see what, see if it's any good. It's good. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So now I have to watch all of them. So I kept the app. <laughs> <laughs> Might as and well. It's somewhat, yeah. It's a little cheaper than a lot of the like pay channels you can get that way. Oh. And to be honest, I, I do like to reward networks that have good programming. So, yes. so I'll keep it until I finish the show Okay, um, because they're releasing one episode a week. Oh, um, but all that said, you could always wait until all the episodes have aired and then order the seven day day trial and totally and binge, binge it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That probably would have been the smarter way to do it. But I was like I heard about it and I was dying to watch it. So <laughs> Oh, plus there's so many good shows on Showtime. Yeah, I mean, it won't get wasted. So um anyway, uh it's about uh the escape from the Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Oh. That happened in two thousand and fifteen. I remember this. Yeah, two prisoners escaped with the help of a married female employee at the prison. And uh, the story is mostly about a bunch of white people, <laughs> full, full disclosure. But uh, Benicio del Toro is in it. Yes. Hey, hey, hey. How are you, Benicio? So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a so, really fascinating story. Like, are, do you remember on the news, like, they they did, like, a smiley face uh like where they where they exited they drew a giant smiley face and like a fu pigs in in spray paint or something like like they no, they, they were very brazen uh yeah in escape which just made it so cool <laughs> yeah um, and then the whole story with the um the female employee uh, apparently they were both uh sexually involved with this lady yes so and um patricia arquette plays her in the TV show, and she's excellent. She's excellent all yeah. around. Anyway, yeah. awesome, awesome. Um, well, I just might, I just might have to get my seven day free <laughs> Showtime trial. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that it has been so fun, Beth, talking about this Lester Street case. Where can yeah, the so fun, so fun? <laughs> Where can the people find us? <laughs> Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App, which you can download to your phone. Or you can find online at cash.me forward slash dollar sign Fruit Loops Pod. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. And this will help us pay for things like our website and pod hostings. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. Yes, it would. Um, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time. Look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. <sighs> I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now.